Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello and welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your host, author of two books called Lady Killers and Confident Women. And before we get into today's story, which I have branded already on Instagram as a spooky vintage one, I have a couple of news items for you, newsy-ish things. Um, thank you so much for listening to last week's episode, the story of Sister Eli and the dark side of plea deals. If you listened all the way to the end, you might have heard me bragging about a certain tote bag I have from the Women's Prison Association and smugly saying that I didn't think there were any left. <laughs> But the joke's on me, folks. There are still some tote bags left, and they are being held for Criminal Broad's listeners. So if you got all fired up by the episode and want to help, if you become a recurring donor to the Women's Prison Association, and that can be $5 a month. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot of money, although if you give a lot of money, that's amazing. If you do that and you put Criminal Broad's in your donation somewhere, like in the box where it asks you if you want to leave any notes— you will get a free tote bag. So do it. I'll put the link in the show notes. I'm going to put another link in the show notes um, that I'm about to tell you about. But I've also had some people ask me what the show notes are. So the show notes, if you are listening to this podcast, whatever app you're using, click on the episode you want to listen to and then try to see the episode description, which is where there'll be a little paragraph from me saying like, the woman was never found, but blah, 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 You know, there'll be a paragraph summarizing what the case that we're talking about is about. That's the show notes. Scroll down. You'll see a link to my Patreon. You'll see a link to Instagram. You'll see links to sources, and you'll see links to anything else I talk about. Does that make sense? Message me on Instagram if you still can't find them. Okay, second thing I wanted to tell you about. Let's talk about John Wayne Gacy for just one second. I know. He does not belong on this podcast. We don't want him here. And we will never truly allow him into this space because he's the worst. But a crime-fighting broad friend of mine, the journalist Allison True, has been researching a new angle of the John Wayne Gacy case for a decade. And she and her film-producing friend Tracy Ullman have a new series out called John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. And it's a six-part documentary series, and it's streaming on Peacock. So I don't know how, like, you watch things on Peacock, but I'm on the website right now, and it says, start watching for free. So you can check it out. I will put this link in the show notes, which we've just discussed. And why is this important? Well, they make a compelling case that the story we know of John Wayne Gacy, the lone serial killer from the 70s, is not exactly the whole picture. They suspect he might have had accomplices, that his well-known political connections might have been used to cover up certain things. Basically, they argue that something is rotten at the core of this case. And you might also be thinking, like, this case is over and done with. Why should we care? But the rottenness at the core of this case is actually affecting people today. It's all sounding very mysterious, but go watch the series and you'll see what I'm talking about. I myself 
have recently been reporting an article about the mother of the cops told her that her son was a John Wayne Gacy victim. And she never believed them. And she got a lawyer and they recently did an exhumation and did a DNA test. And the body in the grave is not her son. So I'm working on an article about that mom. You'll hear some of that in the docuseries. But when my article comes out, I'll also tell you about it. But my point is, we think of this as ancient history that's over and done with, but it's actually not. And there are still questions to this day that are really affecting people. So anyway... You know where to find the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get on to the story. Today, I thought that we should go vintage. I feel like we haven't done a really vintage case in quite some time. And how dare I? Because here at Criminal Broads LLC, we love a vintage case. We also haven't done a mystery, like, ever. This might be our first, spoiler alert, unsolved case. So we're going to get into a famous missing persons case that was incredibly big news at the time, 1910, but I really think people have kind of forgotten about. So we're going to go back to the those frenzied days, weeks, months, and years when everyone was wondering where this wealthy young lady had vanished. Let's get started. On December 13, 1950, the New York Times published a story about a girl they'd been writing about for quite some time now. The headline read, Dorothy Arnold Missing 40 Years. The story had lines like, There is general agreement among police officials that the case is in a class by itself. The last two paragraphs read, She would be about 65 today if she were alive and there is no legal proof that she is not alive. Acting Captain John Cronin, in charge of the Missing Persons Bureau, said that since police had no proof of her death or that she had gone away of her own free will, the case was listed as open. Today, there is nobody at police headquarters who was there when Dorothy Arnold disappeared. Captain Cronin was nine years old at that time. Now, it's been over 70 years since that article was published, which means it's been over 110 years since Dorothy Arnold vanished. So now, we can say for sure that she is not alive anymore. But that's about all we can say for sure. It's a well-known fact about the true crime genre that our most famous mysteries tend to involve beautiful white women. We still don't know what happened to Natalie Holloway or who killed the Black Dahlia. Today, though, we've mostly forgotten to be obsessed with the mystery of Dorothy Arnold, a white woman who was kind of beautiful, but more importantly, very rich. She was not the first missing person case in the world, of course, but her story captivated the public for years. And to this day, people have no idea what really happened to her. Back in 1910, Dorothy Arnold's life looked perfect, at least from the outside. 
There were probably thousands of women in America that year who would have killed, or at least committed some sort of minor felony, to be Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold. That was the year the Boy Scouts of America was founded, the year that Glacier National Park was established, and the year that both Wilbur and Orville Wright flew together for the first and only time. World War I was still three years away, so women like Dorothy Arnold filled their days with pleasantries like shopping for new dresses, buying chocolates, browsing bookstores, and keeping their secrets close to their hearts. Dorothy was an heiress who lived in New York City. Her father was descended from the Mayflower and made his money in cosmetics and perfume. Her uncle was on the Supreme Court. Her family was listed in the Social Register, which was the who's who of America. She was educated by governesses and tutors and finally at Bryn Mawr. She had blue-gray eyes and brown hair, which she wore in a huge pompadour. She was healthy and outwardly happy. It's worth noting that in 1910, she was 25 and unmarried, which made her a bit older than your average unmarried girl. The average age at which a woman got married back then was about 21 and a half. So at 25 years old, Dorothy probably would have known a lot of young women who were already wives and mothers. But we don't know that she necessarily felt weird about this or depressed by it. Her sights, it seemed, were elsewhere. It wasn't that nobody wanted to marry her, though. She was quite the eligible young thing, and she had a lover, though her family disapproved of him. His name was George C. Griscom Jr. He went by Jr. And he wasn't exactly the type of Prince Charming that you might expect a young heiress to dream about. He was 42, and he was balding, but he had sideburns. And he still lived with his parents, and he didn't really do much of anything. Dorothy's father would later rage about how he didn't approve of, quote, young men who have nothing to do. And it was pretty clear he was talking about Junior. But Dorothy saw something in Junior and in his sideburns, and he saw something in her. The two of them were in love, and Junior claimed later that they were planning to get married. Junior may have looked like a rather boring guy, but there was clearly some passion between them, because, very scandalously, the two of them spent a secret week together in Boston just a few months before Dorothy disappeared. In September of 1910, Dorothy asked her parents if she could visit an old college friend in Cambridge, and they gave her permission. But instead, she went to Boston and met up with Junior. He stayed in the Hotel Essex. She stayed in the Hotel Lennox. Whether or not they ever entered each other's hotels is debatable. But people remember seeing them walk around the city, glowing with happiness. At one point, Dorothy pawned some of her jewelry, presumably to fund their illicit vacation. By October, Dorothy was back in New York with her parents, and Junior was planning a European trip with his. Maybe something had been sparked within her during her scandalous Boston trip. Because Dorothy was dreaming now. She was openly dreaming of a life very different than her heiress's life of tea parties and matinees. She was dreaming not just of hotel rooms with Junior, but of a career for herself. A rather bohemian career. Dorothy had decided that she wanted to be a writer. She told her family this in October of 1910, the month after her week away with Junior. 
and she made a rather wild request. She asked her dad if she could rent an apartment in Greenwich Village and go live there and write. Now, in 1910, Greenwich Village was just starting to be the wild bohemian enclave that we remember it as today. It was filling up with restaurants in basements, with cheap drinks and low rents. It was a mix of immigrants, Midwesterners determined to be poets, women determined to be free, sweatshop workers, union members, self-styled intellectuals, rabble-rousers, and revolutionaries. And Dorothy wanted to be a part of it. But her father said, absolutely not. There was no way in hell he was letting his daughter waltz off to that bohemian netherworld and slum it with socialists. A good writer can write anywhere, he told her, which is probably true, but which was a real disappointment for Dorothy to hear. But she obediently put her head down and stayed home and tried to become a good writer. Her first short story was called Poinsettia Flames, and she sent it to the popular magazine McClure's. They sent it right back to her, rejected. This would have been hard enough for Dorothy to handle in private, but now that her family knew that she fancied herself quite the young writer, they mercilessly teased her for her failed literary ambitions. So Dorothy continued to write, but she did it in secret now. She rented a post office box, presumably so that she could send out her manuscripts in private. Her second short story was called Lotus Leaves, and she sent it out, hopefully. By then, it was right before Thanksgiving, and Dorothy had plans to visit a college friend in Washington, D.C. This friend, Theodora Bates, was the friend that Dorothy had said she was visiting when she really went to have her romantic week with Junior— But this time, Dorothy really was visiting the real Theodora. So she got there the day before Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving Day, she said she wanted to stay in bed. That day, something odd happened. Someone delivered a thick envelope for Dorothy to Theodora's house. Now, Theodora always insists that the mailman delivered it. But why was the mailman delivering mail on Thanksgiving Day? The package looked like it could have been about the size and shape of a rejected story, maybe lotus leaves, and that's what Theodora assumed it was. She gave the package to Dorothy, who was still in bed, but Dorothy just threw it to one side and didn't even open it. At least she didn't open it while Theodora was watching. The next day, Dorothy came downstairs with her bags packed and declared that she was leaving. Theodora was shocked. It's only Friday and you are to stay until Monday, she said. Dorothy responded, Oh no, I always planned to leave today. Back in New York, when Dorothy showed up at home, the same situation played out again. Her mother expressed surprise that Dorothy was home so early because she thought she was staying until Monday. And Dorothy said again, No, no, I was always planning to come home today. And then she went to the post office to check her P.O. box for mail. There, she received a couple of letters stamped with foreign postmarks. Since Junior was in Italy with his parents by then, the letters were likely from him. She sent him a letter that same day, which has been described as cheerful, feminine, and chatty. But there were four sentences in it that seemed to hint at something sinister. Well, it has come back, she wrote. McClure's has turned me down. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. 
mother will always think an accident has happened. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The last day that Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was officially seen alive was December 12th, 1910. By all accounts, it was a pretty nice day at first. Dorothy was wearing a great outfit that day. She was wearing a matching blue suit with a coat and a hobble skirt. Hobble skirts are those skirts that curve in at the ankles, which make the wearer take short, mincing, ladylike steps. She wore a huge black hat lined with blue and decorated with two blue roses. She carried a very large muff made of fox fur and a purse. And her outfit was completed with black silk stockings, Irish lace at her neck, and blue lapis lazuli earrings. According to an article in American Heritage magazine written 50 years later, this sort of outfit would make her highly conspicuous at a time when class distinctions in female dress were sharp. She was dressed up like this because she was going shopping. Dorothy's younger sister, Marjorie, was having her coming out party in five days, and Dorothy told her mother that she was going to look for a new evening gown to wear to the party. Her mother expressed a desire to come along, but Dorothy told her, no. She said, no, mother, don't bother. You don't feel just right, and it's no use going to the trouble. I mightn't see a thing I want, but if I do, I'll phone you. Let's take a closer look at that exchange. Dorothy's mother, Mrs. Arnold, was sickly, and she was known for almost never leaving their house. So why had she offered to go with Dorothy that day? Did she sense that something was about to happen? Did she not trust her daughter to do what she said she was going to do? And why did Dorothy turn her mother down? Was she really thinking of her mother's health? Did she just want to be alone because she just wanted to be alone? Or did she have a more sinister reason for leaving her mother behind? Was she plotting something? She left her home on New York's Upper East Side near Central Park at about 11 a.m., and she walked downtown. She had somewhere between $25 and $30 with her, which was a lot of money in those days. It would be like carrying about $700 in cash today. She walked 20 blocks to buy a half-pound box of chocolates, which she tucked inside her large muff, and then she walked another 32 blocks to browse at a bookstore, where she bought a collection of love stories called Engaged Girl Sketches. In the first chapter, a young woman frets over not being engaged yet to the man she loves. It includes lines like this. She dismissed an obtrusive thought and hugged again her repeated mental assertion that their understanding love required no formal ratification, that words were superfluous when eloquent eyes could speak. 
Outside of the bookstore, Dorothy ran into a friend, and they talked for a few minutes. The friend was coming to her sister's going-out party, and so she handed Dorothy her RSVP. By then, it was almost 2 p.m. Dorothy had been out about three hours. She and her friend said goodbye. And then, Dorothy vanished. When Dorothy didn't show up for dinner, her family grew nervous. Dorothy would never not come home for dinner without telling them. That wasn't how she acted at all. So they began calling her friends, asking, have you seen Dorothy? Is she with you? Her friends all said no. At that, Dorothy's parents would say, please don't tell anyone about this call. Right from the very beginning, the Arnold parents had more than just their missing daughter on the brain. They were obviously concerned with how the whole situation looked, with the scandal of it. This can be interpreted in one of two ways. One, they were so shallow and so caught up in their lives as the who's who of New York City that they cared more about their reputation than about their daughter's life. Or two, they knew more than they were letting on. The night stretched on. It was midnight. Still no sign of Dorothy. Her family made no moves to call the police. Right after midnight, one of Dorothy's friends called back to see if Dorothy had come home yet. Dorothy's mom answered the phone. The friend asked if Dorothy had returned, and Mrs. Arnold replied, Yes, she's here. The friend said, basically, Oh, that's great. Can I talk to her? There was a pause. And then Mrs. Arnold said, Oh, she had a headache and went right to bed. The next morning, the Arnold family still did not call the police. Instead, they called a lawyer in his 20s who was a friend of Dorothy's brother. This lawyer was named John Keith, and he began acting like a sort of DIY Sherlock Holmes for the Arnold family. He went into Dorothy's room, and there he found some letters with foreign postmarks, two folders for transatlantic steamships, and a pile of burned papers in the fireplace. The papers were too burned to see what they were. There was no visible writing left anywhere on them. But Dorothy's brother, John, told John Keith that maybe she'd burned up one of her rejected short stories. For the next six weeks, John Keith searched morgues and hospitals and jails all on his own, looking for Dorothy. Eventually, the family asked the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency for help, but they still refused to involve the police, seemingly terrified of scandal. Finally, after those six weeks, they agreed to ask the New York City cops to help them. The deputy police commissioner recommended going to the press right away. If this story got out, if everyone knew to look for Dorothy, it could help the case immensely. But Mr. Arnold hated this idea. It took two days of arguing before he agreed to let the news come out. Two more days of precious time lost for the sake of maintaining appearances. When he finally agreed to talk to the press on January 26, 1911, he told them that he was sure his daughter was dead. He even had a very specific idea of what had happened to her. He said that she was walking home through Central Park, was attacked and strangled, and then her body was thrown into the reservoir there. Atrocious things do happen, he told the press, though there seems to be no justification for them. 
He also told the press that his sickly wife had retreated to a resort in New Jersey to recuperate. But this was a lie. As a matter of fact, his wife and son were in Europe just then. They'd hopped on a ship to Florence to track down Junior, Dorothy's lover. There, they quizzed him about Dorothy's disappearance, but he told them he didn't know anything. Eventually, Dorothy's brother went back to New York, but Mrs. Arnold stayed in Europe for a few more weeks, looking for her daughter. Journalists found the brother on his ship back to New York, and he pretended that he had no idea that his sister was even missing and that he'd been in Europe since November. When he found out that his father had already given a press conference and told the world about Dorothy, he just said, I am sorry my father should have seen fit to give out the story. The police combed through hospitals across the country and passenger lists of ships to Europe, and they sent Dorothy's photo to cities across the world, and they told the press that they were confident Dorothy would show up because they hadn't found any sign of foul play or suicide. But her father continued to insist that his daughter was dead. Journalists found him in the hallway of his lawyer's office, weeping. Boys, it is the silence of death, he told them. Now it was February, and Dorothy had been missing for two months. Her lover, Junior, put ads in the newspapers, asking her to send him a message if she saw them. He started his own search for her with his own investigators, but he gave up after only a month. Newspapers filled with rumors. She'd been kidnapped. She'd been drowned. She'd driven away in an automobile for Philadelphia. She was in this hospital or that one. Three women from Chicago swore that they'd seen Dorothy there, selling shoe polish. In March, the lakes of Central Park were dragged, but no body emerged. In April, a rumor surfaced that Dorothy was in Geneva, teaching at a girls' school. That summer and fall, her parents were seen in Europe several times, but each time they denied that they were there looking for their daughter. By the time Dorothy had been missing for an entire year— Her family, and John Keith, the lawyer-turned-private eye, declared in the papers that she was dead. Not one word has ever been received from Miss Arnold, nor have we or anyone else who aided in the worldwide search that was made ever been able to find a single clue as to what became of her, John Keith told the New York Times. You may say that since the day she went away, the family has never been able to get the slightest trace of Miss Arnold— and they, and also myself, believe that she is dead, for that is the only explanation that we can conceive of to account for her long absence. When the New York Times published an article hinting that Dorothy's friends believed she had been, quote, held in white slavery, John Keith wrote to the papers denying it, saying, while her family and her friends do believe that she was kidnapped, they also believe that she was promptly made away with as soon as her identity was discovered in order to prevent any risk of discovery. By then, Dorothy had become part of the country's lexicon. The New York Times used the phrase, gone like Dorothy Arnold, to describe other missing girls. By the late 1920s, both of her parents were dead. Her father specified in his will that he wasn't leaving any money to her because she was dead. His will said, I have made no provision in this will for my beloved daughter, Dorothy H.C. Arnold, as I am satisfied that she is not alive. 
His original insistence that Dorothy had been killed right away was almost literally the hill he died on. By 1935, Dorothy had been missing for 25 years. People still claimed that they'd seen her, though the tips were few and far between in those days. Someone had recently said that they'd seen her in New York, not far from where she went missing originally. Detectives searched the area, but couldn't find any sign of her. An article written on that morbid 25-year anniversary declared, No one has ever advanced any sound reason for her disappearance, and if her family knew of any, they did not inform the hordes of investigators. To this day, Dorothy Arnold has not been found. So what happened? As with any famous missing case, there are theories of all stripes and sizes. One theory is that Dorothy slipped on the ice, cracked her head, and lost her memory, ending up God knows where. Now, all the hospitals around New York were searched thoroughly, so this theory is a bit hard to believe, but perhaps she really did become an amnesiac and wander off into an accidental new life somewhere. Another theory is that Dorothy was driven to suicide by the failure of her writing career and by her father's refusal to let her live out her bohemian fantasies in Greenwich Village. Reporters uncovered the rather random fact that her lover Junior's cousin— had killed himself by jumping off a transatlantic ocean liner because his parents wouldn't let him marry the girl he loved. Some believed that this might have inspired Dorothy, who did have those steamship folders on her desk. A more compelling piece of evidence for the suicide theory is that line in her letter to Junior, All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. The third theory is that Dorothy got pregnant, maybe during that week with Junior in Boston, and that she decided to get an abortion. Remember the mysterious package she got on Thanksgiving Day? That could have been her rejected manuscript, driving her to kill herself, or it could have been money from Junior to pay for an abortion. She may have died on the operating table. It wouldn't have been the first time a secret abortion resulted in death. In 1914, two doctors in Pittsburgh were arrested for performing abortions, and one of them told the district attorney that the other doctor had given Dorothy Arnold an abortion. This doctor also claimed that Dorothy had died and that his fellow doctor had cremated her body. When detectives raided the accused doctor's house, they found two huge furnaces in his basement. Then there was the Arnold family's pet theory that Dorothy was murdered. In 1916, a convict named Edward Glenn Orris claimed that he had helped to bury a woman's body and that he was pretty sure that the woman was Dorothy Arnold. Edward said that he had buried a dead woman's body in the basement of a mansion near West Point under a concrete floor. And what do you know, detectives found a home that matched his description and a concrete floor that had clearly been dug up at some point. The owner told them that the floor had been disturbed because there was a gas pipe there. And when detectives dug, they found not Dorothy's bones, but the gas pipe. 
But if this particular confession proved to be false, her family still clung to the general idea that Dorothy had been murdered. The weird thing was that they had no proof for this. Family friends even told reporters that the Arnolds, quote, had no basis of fact for this belief. And they had come to this conclusion so quickly. Her father had always insisted so vehemently that his daughter was murdered. Was he protesting too much? The last and final theory about what happened to Dorothy Arnold is the happiest and the weirdest. It's the theory that Dorothy didn't really vanish at all. That she left to live a new life, and that her family knew about it, and that they just pretended that she was dead so they wouldn't have to acknowledge her. We know that Dorothy had dreams that she was unable to live out. She had to lie to her family in order to see her lover, and though she longed to be a bohemian writer in Greenwich Village, she was just laughed at by her family and yelled at by her father. If Dorothy had run away to live a scandalous life somewhere, and if her family found her before too long, and if they were unable to convince her to come back home or if they were too embarrassed to let her come back home— That could explain why they waited so long to involve the police and why they stuck so loudly to their theory that she was dead. It's hard not to interpret her dad's insistence that she was murdered as sort of giving up way too soon. What parent declares after six weeks with no evidence that their missing child is definitely at the bottom of the Central Park Reservoir? Years later, the fact that Mr. Arnold put Dorothy in his will just to say that she was not in his will feels odd. If she were dead, why did he need to specify that she wasn't getting any of his money? She wouldn't be getting any of his money if she were dead. But he put it in writing very deliberately. Was it to show that he was still angry at her? Was it to make sure that a very much alive Dorothy didn't get a penny of his fortune? Why did her parents spend so much time in Europe that year? Could they have been over there arguing with Dorothy herself, trying to convince her to come home? It's strange that they kept insisting that they weren't in Europe to look for their daughter. If they really thought that she was missing, wouldn't they want to stay around home in case she showed back up? Why would they just waltz off to Europe on an extended vacation when their daughter had vanished recently? It didn't make a whole lot of sense. Of course, there are plenty of reasons to question this theory, just like all the others. Newspapers reported that Dorothy's family had spent $50,000 looking for her, which is an awful lot of money to spend on a fake investigation. And it is hard to imagine that a rather sheltered heiress could have pulled off such a successful disappearance. But it was easier to disappear back then. Dorothy did have those folders for ocean liners on her desk, which seems like a pretty clear sign that she was thinking of travel. And Dorothy had gone on secret trips before. She was no stranger to duplicity. Maybe that sinister line in her letter, Mother will always think an accident has happened, wasn't talking about suicide, but about escape. 
We may never know, really, what happened to Dorothy Arnold. And maybe, just maybe, she wanted it that way. right, folks, that's the end. Thank you so much for listening. Run, don't walk to your emails and email me criminalbroads at gmail.com and tell me what you think happened to Dorothy Arnold. Do you think Junior was suspicious? I personally don't find him a suspicious figure, but others do. If your team Junior did something weird, email me about it. All right. Um, I'd like to thank this episode's patron, Sarah Y, for her support. Thank you so much, Sarah. And other than that, you know the drill. If you like the podcast, leaving a review would be super helpful. Go to Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads to see photos of Dorothy and her missing poster, which is very old-fashioned. And there was one last thing. Oh, yeah, Patreon.com slash Criminal Broads if you want to support the podcast that way. But more importantly, consider becoming a monthly donor to the Women's Prison Association A, because it's the right thing to do. B, because they do great work. But C, because of the tote bag. All right, I love you all so much. Thanks for being the best listeners ever. And I'll be here next week with, I'm trying to think, what are we doing? Oh, oh yeah. Next week we've got our interview episode and we're going to hear about a very rollicking and uh, brave female thief slash con woman slash... I feel like the thing she was most obsessed with is sort of the most minor of crimes. Pickpocket. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.